And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. It is, of course, uh, the Wednesday edition, hump day edition of The Real Investment Show. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest daily market commentary already posted this morning. But uh, if you're subscribed, you get an email uh, right at 7.30 this morning. It's everything you need to know about the markets, where we are, and, and of course, uh, what you need to be thinking about for the day. Well, today's important, so a couple of things going on. Well, we've got earnings still going on here, right? This morning, we saw analog devices come out today. They reported better than expected earnings. Lowe's came out with mixed results, um, you know, kind of citing a shortened spring selling season. And that kind of hurt their results a bit. Stock is trading up this morning, even though it did report mixed results. But the interesting one was Target. Target is down fairly sharply this morning at the open, um, citing, well, really citing a very big profit loss as they had to slash prices in order to clear that inventory overhang. So remember, uh, uh, in the first quarter, we were talking about how Target had this big inventory overhang. We were having this bullwhip effect in the economy where all that liquidity and stimulus we sent to households created a bunch of demand, but there was no supply because the, well, the, the economy was shut down. And of course, then everybody went and ramped up supply, created a lot of inventory, and this led to a big surge of inventory build at, at companies like, like Target and Walmart, who also cited the same thing. And you know, this was to meet this demand. Well, what nobody counted on or nobody thought about really was that the demand was going to be short lived because, well, nobody was sending more checks to households, right? So once that money was spent, demand dropped off, foot traffic slowed in stores and inventories continued to build up. Well, this is kind of that bullwhip effect now, um, you know, with the bullwhip recoiling back, Target having to slash prices in order to get that inventory moved off the shelves. So, you know, what now, now we lead to the other problem. They're getting rid of inventory. They're going to be a little bit hesitant about ramping back up on inventory unless they see demand really starting to improve. So now we kind of get to this kind of wishy-washy segment of the next third and fourth quarter where we might see new orders continue to decline. We've seen that recently in a lot of the Fed manufacturing reports, new orders really sharply on the decline. So in other words, you know, companies like Target and Walmart not placing a lot of orders because they still have a lot of inventory to work through, having to do discounting to get that done. That's impacting profit margins. And if this doesn't improve soon, unfortunately, what that means is that companies will have to move towards other measures in order to potentially maintain profit margins to you know, beat Wall Street estimates, because that's the whole name of the game here, which that would suggest more layoffs, terminations, and a rise in unemployment. So, you know, again, you know, the, the highest cost for any business is and always is uh, labor and benefits and all those other things. So, uh, I'm going to try to hang on to my labor as long as I can. And employers are great about being last to hire, last to fire. But at some point, if we don't start to see a real turn in the economic environment where it's getting stronger, demand is picking up, wages are increasing, um, companies are going to have to start laying off employees. Now, this leads us to the next big important fact for the day that's coming out this afternoon. 
At 2 o'clock, we will see the FOMC minutes from their last meeting. Now, look, here recently, this rally that we've had in the markets really since that last CPI report that came out that showed, you know, kind of a, a softer inflation print. We had zero inflation. Uh, that got everybody excited. The Fed may be close to pivoting on terms of monetary policy. Will they start cutting rates, right? Will they stop hiking rates and start talking about rate cuts? Uh, at least will they start talking about, hey, we've hiked rates enough. We're going to see what happens. That's what the market's hoping for. Well, today we're going to see in the FOMC minutes just kind of really what the Fed was thinking at the last meeting. Are they starting to think about a Fed pivot here or are they more focused on what's going on with inflation and fighting that inflation and trying to get those inflation rates down to their target rate of 2%? That's going to be kind of an important moment for the markets. Markets this morning trading a little bit lower. Uh, technically, we've had a terrific run here. We've talked about this over the last several days, pushing right up in that 200-day moving average. And importantly, we're now you know 9% above the 50-day moving average. That's a very big deviation historically. So when you see these kind of big deviations in the markets from moving averages, they can't stay there very long, and they're going to get a pullback at some point. But more importantly, just kind of this measure, this two standard deviations, it's, uh, again, as we talked about before, it's nothing magical. It's just simply talking about that you kind of stretch the rubber band as far as you can in one direction. What you're talking about in terms of standard deviation is that we've priced in about 95% of the advance, 96% of the advance that you would expect you know, moving this far above the 50-day moving average. And again, if we go back in history and just look at previous times that we've kind of touched this two standard deviation band, we've almost always had a correction at some point. Now, sometimes these rallies can stay up at the band for a little while longer and just kind of flirt around with it. But eventually you're going to get a correction at some point, just simply because, again, when you move kind of this far above, again, what's a moving average, right? The moving average is the average price over the last some period of time, 50 days, 200 days, whatever it is. Well, that means what that means is, is that over the long-term time frame, prices have had to trade both above and below that level to be an average. So uh, again, this is why moving averages are important. They tell you that when you get too far above those moving averages, that you're eventually going to get a correction back to or below that average to keep that average intact. So again, this is why moving averages do tell you a lot about the trend of the markets. They tell you a lot about the direction of the markets. They can also tell you about, you know, when kind of things have gotten a little bit too far ahead of themselves. And that's kind of where we are right now. So markets, you know, not surprisingly, looking to be a little bit lower at the open this morning. Markets have done a really good job as of late of, of you know, kind of opening lower and then rallying back up into positive territory. The buyer's still there at this point. We had, talking, we had talked recently back towards these lows that, you know, there was so much negative sentiment in the markets that buyers were living higher. In other words, that once we began to see the markets turn and that negative sentiment began to turn, that people would start buying into the market at higher prices. And that's exactly what's been happening here. As we continue to have this rally, more and more people getting much more bullish about the markets, much more bullish about the outcome, uh, looking at a lot of different technical indicators, suggesting that the bottom of the market is in. We've, you know, The bear market is now officially over. We're back in a bull market. Um, but again, be real careful with that. We never really were in a bear market. We've been in a correction this entire year so far. And now we're simply just in the other side of that potential correction. So if we're going to have another leg down in the market, that's probably going to happen 
but that's going to require some type of change in sentiment, which is going to come from uh, you know, an unexpectedly more hawkish Fed saying, hey, we're not done hiking rates yet. That would certainly undermine this kind of bullish meme of the markets. Um, the Fed is still, as we've talked about before, still tightening their balance sheet, right? Quantitative te- t- tightening, uh, quantitative teasing, quantitative tightening still in place. And of course, they're reducing that balance sheet, removing liquidity, $95 billion a month, removing that liquidity from the markets. That's a very different environment than we saw previously. And again, if we just kind of go back in market history from where we are, we're kind of at the same level now that we were back in last September, uh, October, November of last year. Haven't really gone anywhere in the last year or so. But the difference is, is back here, Fed was, you know, increasing their balance sheet by $120 billion a month, had zero rates, now higher rates and reducing their balance sheet, but we're at the same level. So again, expected outcomes may be a little bit different than markets expect. Got a lot to get into this morning. Market, uh, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs saying, hey, you should be fully invested. We'll talk about that when we come back from the break with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Hi, Lance Roberts here. If you're like most people, your 401k plan represents the bulk of your retirement assets. And unfortunately for many, managing your 401k plan can be difficult. There's so many choices, so many things to consider. With just a quick email, a couple of questions, you can put RIA advisors to work for you managing your 401k plan. Get started right now at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, or simply call our toll-free number, 855-RIA-PLAN, or again, simply online at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Danny Ratliff, Certified Financial Planner, joining me this morning as well as we always do on Wednesday, kind of catching up on some of the latest kind of financial market and planning topics, of course, as it affects your money. Um, you know, interesting, as I, as I was talking about before, you know, the markets have had a very, very good rally here. And we've talked about this for the last couple of weeks that, you know, markets were very oversold. We were extremely negative. Everybody was bearish. And we said, look, you know, in order for there to be a bear market, you can't have everybody being bearish, right? You've got to have a rally here that gets everybody back to being bullish. That's what allows the rest of the bear market to occur, assuming that you're in a bear market right now. This is this is the difference, right? So if you assume we're in a bear market, in order to have a bear market, you can't have everybody being bearish because that means there's nobody to sell, right? Everybody's already sold. So you need to get everybody back into the market and then the bear market come back, maul you a bit here. Um, if you're in a correction, then that's a little different story because corrections generally have a pullback and then they rally back to new highs. And that's the difference. So one thing you've got to kind to figure out is are we in a bull market or is we in a, are we in a bear market? And there's certainly good arguments for the bear market thesis. Of course, as we've talked about, the Fed is hiking interest rates. Uh, right now, they don't seem to be, you know, slowing, you know, uh, you know, talking about stopping hiking rates. They may pause hiking rates temporarily. They may reduce the speed at which they're hiking rates. 
but they're still hiking rates, right? They're still tightening up that monetary liquidity to quell inflation. That leads to slower economic growth. Earnings estimates are coming down. That makes valuations go up. And so price, stocks have to reprice for lower earnings. Um, they're also tightening their balance sheet. And again, as I said, if you go back one year ago to September of last year, we're about right at the same level we were a year ago. So, you know, even after this rally, you're back to where you were a year ago. Haven't really made any progress. But the big difference was it was a year ago, the Federal Reserve was increasing their balance sheet by $120 billion a month, not reducing it by $95 billion. Interest rates by the Fed were zero, not two and a quarter, and going to 275 next month. So very, very different environments to suggest that you're currently in a bull market. But nonetheless, you know, it, it certainly feels that way because if you watch the media, et cetera, Danny's getting emails, you know, from people. And, and emails are always one of our better contrarian indicators about the markets is when people start emailing us about stuff. <laughs> So it's almost always a good bet that uh, they're on the wrong side of the candle. But again, you know, this is the question. You know, this rally's been terrifically strong. Should you be all in all, you know, be all in equities, right? Is is the is the bear market over? Is the bull market back? That's the big question. We talked about that a little little bit this week already. But you know, uh, some of the big firms, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, according to Danny, they're all in. What do you think? Well, I think that's a lot of firms. I think it's interesting because we can get a little bit of whiplash here because you may have one side of them, the sell side, which sells information to other firms, may say, hey, we're, we're, we're very bearish. But then the retail side or the investor side may say, hey, we're all in. And so I think that's the difficult part is understanding what side of the table do you sit on. And historically, most of these places will remain all in. And there's always going to be that rosy picture on the horizon. And look, I, I think that, Lance, you can, you can agree. We're optimistic for the future. We think there's going to be opportunities. And we're looking at both sides of the coin here as well. But if you never make a trade or never you never reduce exposure, you're always going to be bullish, right? Right, right. So you're always going to say, hey, don't worry. So we're, going to, we're going to make it through this. And, and that's okay because you technically typically will. But the issue is how long does it take? Now, we've had... I mean, you got to think, we've been through a very interesting time over the last several years. 2018, we had a slightly negative year. 2019 was good. 2020 was, we had a, a huge drop and we had a positive year. 2020 was fantastic, or, or 2021, excuse me. And then here we are in 2022, another large drop in the markets and we're whittling our way back, which is great. But these swings are happening much more frequently and we haven't seen any prolonged negative consequences from it per se. So you've been able to kind of ride these things out and you would have been okay for it. Now, but but Lance, we talk about what are the indicators look like? What are the recession numbers look like? I mean, you just mentioned last segment how we're not technically in a bear market. And, and I guess we wouldn't be anymore, but you know, technically we are in a recession unless you go by the new guidelines. <laughs> But people are trading down. I mean, we keep getting data. I mean, one thing that we can take, especially from earnings that we've seen recently, Walmart, 75% of their growth that they saw was from households making over $100,000. Yeah. That's a new segment for them. And I know you've talked about this some. Uh, we're seeing that IHOP, 6 to 8% of their sales were from people who made over six uh, over 75000 Chipotle, the people who are, are on the, under 50000 their sales were down. But for people making over a hundred. Sales were way up. And this is with them doing price hikes. So 
people are trading down. People are shopping differently. They're changing their habits. And I think this would be very indicative of a time where higher interest rates are hurting. Inflation is certainly hurting. And, you know, we're, we're looking at data across the pond. Well, UK inflation was up. Now we saw Canada. And I don't know. I didn't go through the numbers. If you looked at that, Lance, that, they were down a little bit. That's maybe that disinflation we've been looking for. But we're in interesting times. And so I think it's going to be really difficult. So, Lance, you know, the, the question would be is, should we be all in right now? And I think there's a lot of arguments. In fact, you know, Wall Street Journal a week ago had 20 ideas for personal investing and, and how you should adjust. And it, it painted a picture for a much right. more bullish picture. Right, exactly. And it does. I mean, this is, but this is, you know, also too, you have to always remember motivation of these big firms keep you fully invested all the time so they can charge you a fee on total amounts, right? Correct. And then when you have a big correction, well, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, where you get into, well, you know, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's okay. It'll come back. And, and too, it, it's true, man. Markets have always come back. And since 2009, it just goes up, right? And doesn't really seem to, even, even in, you know, during the middle of the economic pandemic shutdown, stocks fell 35%, came right back to positive. I mean, if, if you know, if you sold out of the market at the bottom, you missed out on the whole run. And, and, this, and this is kind of the problem. You know, it's interesting. I've got a chart up right now just so if you're if you're driving, don't try to look at the chart. I'm going to explain it very carefully uh, just so you'll vision, you know, mentally get the picture. But if you happen to be watching our podcast, which we enjoy you watching it and while you're here, make sure you subscribe, click the little red bell icon so that you get notified of when we post new videos. We appreciate that very much. Give us a like. Give us a thumbs up if you like the show. Um but what this chart shows is the long-term history of the markets going back to basically 1985. And this is, this is a, you know, a, a nominal scale. It's not log. Um, but what you, what, it, what you see is that since 1980, markets have just been kind of gradually drifting higher. Completely makes sense, right? We have the bear market in 2001 and 2002. We have the bear market in 2007 and 8. And those were bear markets. Why were those bear markets, right? So this is the important question. So Danny was talking about it's like we're you know we're in a bear. Are we in a bear market? Are we in a correction? So a bear market is when trend you know prices a bull market. Let's let's start with a basic concept. Bull markets are simple, right? Prices are trending higher, and it's interesting to me that when we talk about bull markets versus bear markets, right? There's not a definition for a bull market. A bull market isn't prices are up 20%. A bull market just means markets are going up, right? That's a bull market. It's only this definition of a bear market, this kind of arbitrary number of a 20% decline that means you're in a bear market. Well, see, previously, because markets weren't so deviated from their long-term means that a 20% correction would break the positive trend of previous price growth. The problem since really 2010 and, and more so since 2020 is that we've now extended prices so far above kind of the long-term moving average. I mean, if we look at the 200-month moving average, that's, that's a long time. <laughs> you know, we're so far above, but that, that long-term moving average was the bottom of the market in 2003. It was the bottom of the market basically in 2009. We're so far above that trend line break that it's going to take about a 40% correction to negate the positive trend of markets since 2009. So again, by technical measures, we're in a correction, 
because we have not violated the bullish trend of prices in the markets, right? We have not gotten into a market where the bullish trend in prices has been broken. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very difficult statement to sit there and go, oh, you're in a bear market because we're down, you know, 11%, 10% in the market, 11% right now. And, you know, some arbitrary line that says, you know, kind of 20% your number doesn't mean you're in a bear market anymore. It just means you're having a bigger correction. And, and so to Danny's point, and, and, the, and the thing that's important here is be careful with, you know, lopping yourself into these categories of bull market, bear market, et cetera, and, and be careful about what these big firms like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are telling you. Because, again, they have, they have dueling analysts, by the way. They've got one guy at, at, at Goldman Sachs that's very bullish. They've got another guy that's very bearish. Morgan Stanley is the same way. Morgan Stanley is one of the most bearish analysts on the street, says we're in the middle of a major bear market that's going to resume and wipe you out. And they've got another guy saying, hey, it's all good. Just be long stocks. Who do you believe? Right? That, that's, and that, and this, so you've got to be careful you know, who you're listening to because everybody's got dueling analysts. And, and this is Danny's job and my job is we're trying to sort all this stuff out and go, this is what the technicals are saying. And we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks that the technicals are very bullish right now, suggest that we need to have equity exposure, but markets are very overbought. Wait for a pullback. We'll add exposure on a pullback and have a better risk-reward entry point. But again, we're still very cautious because the Federal Reserve is still – tightening policy. We still have a slowing economic environment. Just yesterday, the Atlanta Fed lowered their GDP estimate for quarter three now down below 2%. They started out at 2.1. We're now down below two as this real-time data keeps coming in. It's coming in, for the most part, a bit weaker than expected. Durable goods orders a little bit better yesterday. Industrial production up. Not surprising, a little bit of a bounce. But overall, that trend of data is clearly still getting weaker. So, you know, and this is all going to impact earnings ultimately. And that's really, the, that's the key that we have to be paying attention to. Be right back after the break with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com in 1999 a para group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients best interest these men promptly escaped from a high cost margin environment to the houston energy corridor today still excoriated by their former employers they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. And, and you know, what we're talking about, you know, the, the markets and, you know, paying attention to what analysts are saying, said It's also important to understand, you know, analyst incentives as what's going on. This is something that, you know, we've talked about here before on the show. In fact, we wrote an article about it. And I just kind of 
pulled up an article that we wrote back in 2019. I probably need to update this article at some point. Um, but this is an article we wrote in 2019 talking about be careful of what Wall Street tells you because they're incented differently than you think they are. Um, as an example, have you ever wondered why when you take a look at you know, stock ratings, like every stock's rated to buy, no matter whether it's going up or going down. And in fact, a good example of this was back in 2008. Danny will remember this. During the financial crisis, banks obviously under massive pressure because of the whole financial crisis. Citigroup was trading $130, $140 a share prior to the financial crisis. It's been a long-term stock winner, and people were, were, were just in love with Citigroup. You own Citigroup, you just never sell it. It was never going down. Need to have all your money in Citigroup type thing. Well, when and, and Citigroup was rated a buy, strong buy, at $130, $140 a share. Well, as the financial crisis set in, stock price started falling, and it was a buy rating all the way down to 5 At $5, it was eventually transferred to a sell rating. And, and, and this is, and, and you go, well, that doesn't make any sense, right? Why wasn't it when the whole financial crisis was going on, why didn't they rank it a sell much sooner? But if you go to look at average broker ratings, and I, I did this previously, and I, and I guarantee you that even though it's two years later, the numbers haven't changed much. But out of the 4,642 issues that I, that I scanned at the time that had ratings, by not every, not every stock has ratings. So I was trying to find companies with the most analyst estimates, et cetera. Only 129 stocks out of 4,642 stocks had a sell rating on it. On it. Only 773 were hold. 3,740 stocks out of 4,642 stocks were rated a buy. Or a strong buy, right? So just a buy rating. And, and they go, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because, you know, obviously not every stock in the index is a buy rated stock or shouldn't be. You know, fundamentally, they're not that great or whatever it is. They've got trouble. It shouldn't be a buy rating. So you have to go and look at how important are stock ratings relative to the analyst compensation. Ah, there's the key word. Compensation. How do analysts get compensated? There was a study by the Wall Street Journal, and I clipped one of the tables that the Wall Street Journal had produced on this. Your industry knowledge is very important. That was 72% of a, 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 you know, attributable to their compensation rank. You're standing in analyst rankings, right? How did they compare to other analysts who were all ranking stocks, right? That was 66% important. Um, your professional integrity, next in line. Your accessibility and or responsiveness. Now, there's an interesting, what does accessibility or responsiveness mean? That means how quickly do you get access to and respond to corporations, Wall Street firms? Now, why would I need that? What's the analyst's job? Your relationship with management of the companies that you follow. How much access do you have? So your success at generating underwriting business and trading commissions. Well, if I have a good relationship with the company, they're going to give me more of their business, right? How do I get a good relationship with Danny's company? Because he's the CEO of Apple. He's the next Tim Cook, he hopes. I get a good relationship with him. He gives me his investment banking business, which is big money. Where does the retail investor fall in all this? 
the profitability of your stock recommendations and the accuracy and timeliness of your earnings forecasts are at the bottom of the list. They are the least important to compensation. So in other words, Wall Street really doesn't care what the analyst tells you, and it really doesn't care what they put out. It's really about their relationship with the Wall Street firms and where they're making their investment banking dollars. And this is very important. And again, I bring this up only because as we talk about Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and these other companies telling you, hey, just be in the markets. Why should you be in the market if, you know, if you're concerned about the economy or, or you know, where interest rates are headed, et cetera? Why is it, why is it that you know, the, the Wall Street firms are so pushing so hard to get you back into equities because it supports the companies that they're invest, doing investment banking for? So, Danny, you make a really good point. You have to realize that a lot of these analysts, they they may look like an actual employee of some of these companies. That's how much time they are spending there. And, you know, Wall mm -hmm. Street Journal actually had another article out a while back that talked about some of the perks that they would receive where, you know, some of the bigger companies or retailers would throw big parties. And if you had a buy rating, you're more than welcome to come. But if you were a hold or a sell, don't try to go through that door. And I think that's one thing to, to keep in mind, that there's additional perks that are associated with these things. And a lot of times you see where you know we all fall is at the very bottom of the list. It's not in the sense of, okay, how, how does this look for the end user, which is you? It's you and I, we're, we're the investors, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's not what they're looking for. They're looking for how do they make more money, like you mentioned, which is the investment bank, which is selling this information to other firms. And it's sad, but true see what's at the very bottom, and that's, does it actually make money? Well, it's interesting because one of the other charts that were, was in the Wall Street Journal article, it says, how important are the following clients to your employer? <laughs> hedge funds were number one. 81% of the respondents said hedge funds, number one. Mutual funds, number two. Defined benefit pension plans, number three. Insurance firms, number four. Endowments and foundations were number five. High net worth individuals, Number six, and at the bottom of the list, number seven, ranking in with only 13% of the analysts saying that they're important at all, retail brokerage clients. 51% of the analysts surveyed said that retail brokerage clients are not important at all to the firm. They are simply the people we offload wow. the stocks on. And that's and see, this is the important thing is understand your place in the world also, too, when you're investing is that when when a, a firm comes out to you and, and and so I'm I'm Morgan Stanley, right? I'm going to do a new IPO or a new SPAC and I come out and say, oh, you need to buy this, right? And I start shoveling it off to retail clients. You know, that's where you've got to really ask yourself is why am I so lucky to get into invest in this? You know, because most likely the shares you're getting are being sold out of some hedge fund or some pension fund or some insurance company fund that had the shares on a private basis now they're liquidating them to you in the ipo and that's why you know in 21 2020 2021 we saw this massive surge of ipos and liquidations by all these companies that own private equity they were just dumping all their private equity holdings on the markets they were making all the money all those SPACs, everything else got dumped onto the retail investor Robinhood investors gobbled those things up like candy paid the price for it yeah, or they're the market maker. I mean, they're yeah. the guys bringing it to market. I yeah, mean, they make a ton of money. Yeah. So again, the, the, the point, well, look, we're not, we're not shamming the industry, right? That's, that's not the point of the conversation. The, the point of the conversation is this, just be careful when you're being told something by the Wall Street firms because they're a very big business. They're a huge business. And their job is to sell product. You know, 
Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, they're not there going, hey, you know, we're going to manage your money conservatively for you and make sure that, you know, you're going to survive bear markets and you're going to be fine and get your gold. No, you're not that type of client, right? You are the, you are the shopper at Target. Target's there to sell product and they want you to walk through the door and they're going to sell you product. And as long as you're willing to pay up for the product, they're going to charge you more and more and more for the same product. When they've got too much product, like they announced today, they'll slash those prices to get you into the store. So why? So they can get rid of that product and get it sold off to you and try to make what money they can out of it. Wall Street's exactly the same way. They produce product, they sell you product, and your job is to buy it. They make revenue, you have a product, and hopefully you're happy. Right. And as long as markets are going up, everybody's happy. Yeah, I think you should have to take all this information with a grain of salt. Do your own research. Work with somebody who understands how to actually get into the data and look at the numbers. Because at the end of the day, if we're just relying on that information, we can't be so uh, you know, convinced that it's going to be accurate or that our best interest is at heart. And I think that's the bigger part of it. Right. Exactly. Um, so anyway, just, you know, again, just, just you know, we're kind of just you know, talking about markets in general. And, and I think, you know, the, the, you know, the thing is, is, you know, markets have had a terrific run here. Everybody's getting uber bullish. And it's amazing how fast that people went from being, it's the end of the world. And, you know, Danny will tell you how many clients we had calling us going, you know, I just want to be out of the markets. And, you know, this is just like three, three four weeks ago, right? We had clients call us, just get me out of the markets. I just can't, you know, this market's going down, it's going to zero, it's never coming back, right? You know, typical what you see in, in, a, in a bear market, that kind of attitude. Now those same guys are going, get me back in. And, and this is exactly kind of that. And we, we're seeing that big transition of uber bearishness to uber bullishness inside of a market that's still negative for the year. Well, and Yeah, and mainstream media has pushed a lot of this, and we continue to, to hinge on every word they say and the Fed mm -hmm. and everything that they're doing. And we went from such a bearish outlook to all of a sudden things are rosy and everything's okay, and yet nothing has changed underneath the surface. Right. All the information's the same. All the data's the same. In fact, we could probably say things that we thought would materialize quicker as far as, you know, see that disinflation, see things kind of come down a little bit. That hasn't occurred yet. And so this would probably paint the picture that we sh we're still in the same boat. We're still going the same direction. Yet markets, like you mentioned, have been oversold. We're seeing them come back a bit. And, you know, who knows where they go from here? Still in the, the, bull, the bull market trend. Right. But economic data, is that still supporting it? Yeah, exactly. All right, when we come back, talk a little bit about housing. Switch gears here a bit. Um, yesterday, home builder confidence is dropping sharply. And housing for rent. People building houses just to rent them sharply on the rise. We'll talk about the change in the market environment and, and millennials and their home buying survey that just came out recently. Coming back right after the break, right here on The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high-cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive 
as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. The Real Investment Show. show this morning talking a little bit about housing just for the break and that you know yesterday the national association of home builders came out very negative kind of downbeat view on the markets housing market not not the financial markets the housing markets you know obviously uh, we're starting to see a record number of price cuts in homes in fact we're seeing a record number of people you know this is one thing you always need to look at be careful of when you look at data one of the pieces of data that come out on a regular basis is permits. And we go, oh, look, we had you know, 1,600,000 permits pulled to build houses. Okay, whoa, 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 back up for a second. That's annualized. So you have to take that number and divide that by 12 to determine how many permits were pulled now, right? So just because we pulled 100 permits this month doesn't mean we're going to pull 1200 permits over the entire year 12 yeah over over the year right but that's how we look at this data when you look at a lot of the home sales data that's also annual, annualized if you actually break it down into actually how many homes were sold it's a far smaller number because we take you know 100 homes that were sold and say oh this month we sold 1200 homes no you sold 100 but at this rate, we would sell 1,200 for the whole year. So the housing numbers are a little bit miffy to start with. So you just got to be careful what you're reading into it. But importantly, when you take a look at some of these housing data points that come out, you also have to separate out in terms of like home building, what is multifamily versus individual homes, right? A lot of apartments are getting built. And this is one of the interesting trends that are going on. Um, First of all, right now, there's a record number of home buyers walking away from contracts. In other words, they're going under contract to build a house, right? So we look at that. We go, homes under contract. That number's rising up. Doesn't mean the houses have even been started yet. They're just under contract, right? Just because you pull a permit doesn't mean you're actually going to build a house. You just pulled a permit to build a house, and, and maybe you do, maybe you don't. Well, a record number of people are now walking away from their contracts. So there's a lot of houses that just won't get built. But the other thing is, is that you know, when you take a look at these housing numbers, importantly, is looking at how many housing, you know, how many housing prices are getting cut. We're seeing a big drop in terms of or a big increase, rather, I should say, in the number of people cutting prices on their homes to sell them. And housing prices are falling pretty quickly because of, of too much demand, too little supply. None of this surprising, right? None of this surprising. This is exactly kind of what I thought we would happen. But, you know, again, this is part of that you know, kind of that bull market mentality, I'm getting calls right now going, do you think housing prices are going to correct more? Or should I buy now? Right? Still trying to buy houses here, right? I got to buy cheap. We got a long ways to fall theoretically to get back to normal housing price trends. And I, I don't know if we get that big of a correction or not. We certainly don't have the subprime mortgage crisis that we had before. But it is interesting that 72% of, there's a new survey out, 72% of millennials have regrets about homes they paid for in 2021 and 2022. It's not surprising. No. But I think a lot of times, you know, we see young families begin to start, you know, home ownership. They go down this journey that everybody has to own a home. They jump into something. 
um, let's say they go and get married, which now that's against the trend, evidently. Getting married and having kids is is a big no-no. Yeah. Look, by more recent surveys. Yeah, exactly. But, um, you know, as you go and you start a family, then you think, oh, my gosh, we're gonna, we, need, we need to upgrade. We need a bigger home. We need more room. And, you know, the average family stays in a home for seven years. Well, a lot of times what we find is they underestimate the cost of home ownership, the taxes, the upkeep, the maintenance, um, just all the little stuff that goes into it. And then they turn around and they try to get out of it. Well, in your environment where you bought something this last year or two, you're in trouble yeah. because you're likely upside down, especially with putting very little down. Right. And, and that little money you put down was that stimmy check you got from yeah. the government, right? It's like all of a sudden, I got, oh, I got a down payment now. That's right. I do a 3% Fannie Mae mortgage, buy a house that's a fixer-upper, or I buy a house. Look, here, here's from the survey. I bought a house sight unseen, 17% of those surveyed. Um, I was pressured to make an offer. That was 21%. I bought a fixer-upper was 24%. I bought too quickly, 26% of those surveyed. So, you know, again, just, you know, people were just told by the media they had to buy a house. And they saw, you know, all this stuff on the media about how, you know, prices were just going up and housing was just being turned over left and right. Boy, if you didn't buy a house now, you know, you're going to miss out. And, and it's not surprising that people felt pressured. You know, they have a little bit of money in their pocket, need to go buy a house. I got to stop renting. Yeah. Renting is not a bad thing, people. We need to change this whole mentality about home ownership. Home ownership is not something that you do to build wealth. It's what you acquire once you have your financial stability. Rent, there's nothing wrong with renting. Everybody's like, oh, I don't want to pay somebody else money to rent something. Well, you know what you don't have? You don't have maintenance, upkeep, taxes, all the other crap that goes on with a house that people are now figuring out. All these people that bought houses are like, wait, I have to, I have to fix the washer and the dryer, and I've got to pay. What's this homeowners do things? You know, what is that? You know, what's this appraisal thing I'm getting in the mail? You know, all of a sudden there's all this other stuff that goes on with houses, and this is why Danny and I talked about before with houses. Houses aren't an investment. They're an expense over time. Nobody ever goes back and says, okay, I bought my house for 100000 I sold it for 200000 10 years later. Cool. I made, I doubled my money in my house. No, you didn't. Go back and strip out taxes, maintenance, upkeep, lawn service, maid service, you know, whatever else you got, good pool service, and whatever factor else you got. And factor in inflation. And factor in inflation. And you didn't make near that much money. It was not that great of an investment if it was profitable at all. Yeah. Now, some houses went up so quickly you made money. Well, and, and you know, you're talking more about primary residential, yeah, your, your home. But you can you can make money in real estate. I mean, we, uh, absolutely. You know, there's lots of different avenues to do so. Um, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, I've rental property, and we have lots of conversations. I've been around it my whole life, um, and I have a lot of conversations with people about rental property. And I'm beginning to see a lot of people who are now stepping out of the rental game because they just underestimated the amount of work. If you actually want to make money, don't go hire a property management company. Yeah. I mean, that can be it can be time consuming. Yeah. No, it is. And, and, and you got to you've got to try to get. Hopefully, you get a good tenant, and they keep up with they they take care of the house, and you don't have a lot of maintenance and upkeep, and you're not up at three o'clock in the morning going yeah. to plumb a toilet. You know, whatever it is. I mean, it, it's look, it's a job. Rent, rental properties are great business. People have made a ton of money doing commercial real estate. I've got a good friend of mine makes a ton of money doing commercial real estate. 
right? He builds properties, he rents them out. And really, that's the name of the game in real estate is building something with an asset value that you then rent out and create an income flow on that is greater than your payments that you're making on the property. And eventually the property pays for itself. And you've got a paid for asset that you use leverage on, right? That's the, that's the beautiful key about real estate is that, you know, if you're doing it right, you put 20% down, you're getting 80% leverage on the house. And, you know, you just have to, you know, pay it off over time. And you've got this very inflated asset value because that income stream from the rentals paid off that 80% loan you had. And now you own all of it, which is fantastic. And you deducted your interest expenses over time. You deducted all your maintenance and upkeep and all that from your business. By the way, if you are rental, renting prop, doing rental properties, make sure and put each house in an LLC. First lawsuit will fix up that misdemeanor for you. <laughs> If you yeah. don't believe me, <laughs> ask anybody that's been there. Um, but, but you know, housing is awesome. But, you know, the problem is, and, and again, going back to my original point, Danny, and, and I don't want to miss this point, is that there's so many people that are being told by the mainstream media is you have to own a home. You don't have to own a home, right? There's nothing wrong with renting until you're financially able and stable enough to own it. And look, and there's a real simple key measure to know if you're able to own a home. You can save up a 20% down payment. This is one of the biggest mistakes we made, you know, since the turn of the century, which is going into all these adjustable rate mortgages and low down payment mortgages and all this, is that if you had to if you had to save up a 20% down payment, that to A takes a while to do. And it also means that you have to have kind of good financial stability at home that you're able to save money. You actually have positive cash flow in the household. You're not living paycheck to paycheck. And so a good way to know that you can afford a home is that you were able to save up a 20% down payment on the house you wanted to buy. Now, I know that everybody's like, well, I'll never be able to do that. Well, if that's your answer, maybe you need to go look at your budget because you're not able to save enough money if you can't save up that 20% down payment. And again, it's just kind of, it's just kind of I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm just saying that's a really good measure to know if you're financially capable enough to buy the home, maintain the upkeep, the taxes, all that that goes along with it. You should do that. That's the kicker is that you should. But you should do actually that and much more. You should have that emergency reserve fund. You should have that and, and even a little bit more for the maintenance and all of these additional things that go along with home ownership. You know, there's old school rule of thumbs that uh, the, the uh, these big institutions have for you. You know, no 35% of... Uh, you know, debt to income at max, you need 28% on a home. Um, you know, Richard here at RIA, he has even more stringent rules where he says, don't buy a house unless it's, you know, no more than twice your income, which I'm not sure you can find one this these days, right? <laughs> you got to be making a killing, but you need to be conservative with these. You need to make sure you back into the numbers on this and really understand what is the intent? What is the time frame you're looking to stay in something or, how are you going to maintain and manage it? I mean, I think that's one of the bigger aspects. Yeah, if it's no. a if it's a secondary residence or um, VRBO, we're seeing a lot of people get in the VRBO game, and and now we're beginning to see those numbers falling off, where right. they're not being rented nearly as frequently. Right. Well, I mean, look, uh, it's cash flows tight. Yeah. And there's just kind of really no way around that. But again, this is just uh, you know kind of things to think about. You know, again, we're not, uh, again, I just want to make sure that you understand we're not poo-pooing the idea of owning real estate. It's certainly a, a great thing. You should own a home at some point because, yes, it's property that you own. That's kind of the, that's the American dream, right? You know, the American dream, though, isn't home ownership. The American dream was always, you know, coming to America with two nickels in your pocket, building something, 
And the result of that success was the ability to buy property. And that was the reflection of your success of building the American dream. And somehow we kind of perverted that over the last 23 years. <laughs> so anyway, Danny, thanks so much for joining us today. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, check out Simplevisor, which is our all digital investment platform. We got some new tools coming out this week. Uh, looking at relative rotation of markets and sectors. That'll be on the website here soon. Uh, get our latest newsletter. That's on the website. Cl simply click the newsletter link. Make sure you're subscribed. We email that to you every Saturday. And our daily market commentary comes out every day um, at 7.30. If you're subscribed to that list, different list, but if you're subscribed to that, you'll get that email every morning. It's all at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow. It's a rich man's world.